The world's first statutory, randomized, and nationwide basic income experiment was conducted in Finland in 2017-2018. During the experiment, a total of 2,000 randomly selected unemployed persons were paid a monthly tax-exempt basic income of 560 euros, regardless of any other income they may have had or whether they were actively looking for work. The experiment's purpose was to find ways to reshape Finland's social security system in response to changes in the labour market. The country of Finland ran a two-year universal basic income or UBI evaluation study. As you just heard, the 2,000 unemployed Finns were given unconditional and non-means-tested payments of about 850 Singapore dollars each month. Just last week, the Social Insurance Institution of Finland announced the findings and it concluded, I quote, The basic income recipients were more satisfied with their lives and experienced less mental strain than the control group. They also had a more positive perception of their economic welfare. End quote. However, the effect of the basic income on employment was less clear. While those on basic income worked an average of 78 days, which is six more days than those who are on unemployment benefits, the Finnish government had also introduced new legislation in 2018, which resulted in stricter conditions for unemployment benefits. In other words, it is not possible to discern the effects between the UBI experiment or the policy change. Be that as it may, as I reflected in 2016, policymakers have known little and probably still know little about UBI and its effects. In a 62-page working paper published by the same social insurance institution, it noted on page 8 that, quote, Discussing basic income at a general level is not a useful basis for the experiment because even small differences between basic income models may lead to very different outcomes, end quote. In other words, if you want to understand or to estimate the causal effect of the UBI scheme, research like this should be encouraged. The basic income experiment was carried out successfully and it provided new data that can be used when reshaping the social security system. The experiment provided new information about the effects of basic income that wouldn't be available without this experiment. What about a UBI, or at the very least, a UBI experiment in Singapore? At the same time Finland was preparing to launch its UBI experiment in 2016, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long, in an interview with Time magazine, said our country cannot afford a UBI. He said, quote, Nobody has done it. Even the Swiss voted against it. Silicon Valley thinks it will solve the problem but it is a vast expense and we do not know what the social consequences will be of doing that, end quote. And yet, in April this year, in the midst of a pandemic and a circuit breaker in the country, nominated member of parliament Walter Tessera proposed the Majula Universal Basic Income Scheme in parliament. Designed with Dr. Ong Tien, Deputy Director of Research at the National University of Singapore's Social Service Research Centre, the proposal will see all Singaporeans receiving $110 a week for 12 weeks. This money will be funded by a temporary personal income tax increase of 4.25%. 
Nevertheless, it is important to note that the Majula UBI has some different features from the general conception of a UBI, such as the one proposed in Finland. In addition, the Singaporean policy was also designed specifically in response to a pandemic. In this vein, how did the Majula UBI come about? Are we likely to see a UBI experiment in Singapore? And should we start thinking about the design of social policies in the country? From socialservice.sg, I'm Jing Yao. This is COVID-19 Community Chronicles in Singapore, podcast documenting community initiators and discussing related structural or systemic challenges. Having spent time in Finland and observing its UBI experiment from afar, as well as having read the speeches and policy paper, I was interested to speak with 37-year-old Dr. Ong and 41-year-old Professor Walter on their Majula UBI proposal. You will hear from the interview the important differences between the Majula UBI and the UBI, including my clarification about halfway through our conversation. But I was keen to learn more about their thoughts on social welfare policies and interventions in the country. A big aim of this podcast and of socialservice.sg is to bridge research and practice, and hopefully our conversation will be one of many to come. Here is my full conversation with Dr. Ong and Professor Walter, recorded yesterday on May 12. Maybe just to start off, um, to help me and the listener understand, could you briefly explain what the general concept of a universal basic income or UBI and you know, what are the general arguments of um, proponents and opponents of a UBI, generally speaking, right now? So, so I guess um, everything you need to know about UBI UBI is in those three words, right? Universal, basic, and income. Um, so what does that mean? It, it's a payment that's meant to provide people with a regular income. And it's basic in the sense that the payment is big enough to cover basic living expenses, but uh, it's typically not meant to you know, for example, provide a very high standard of living. And it's universal, so it's given to everybody in a, you know, in a country or a territory uh, on a universal basis. That's usually what it means. Um, so I think, uh, why do people like the idea? Uh, generally, the arguments for the idea are that it will improve the welfare of uh, vulnerable populations, and that's because it guarantees people a certain amount of income without the usual uh, means testing or application procedures that you normally have to go through to get income, okay, um, if, if you can't support yourself through work. And the other, uh, I think, main advantage of these kinds of programs is that it's efficient because it reduces administrative overhead. And again, that has to do with the fact that you don't have to go through an application or means testing process. Uh, the arguments against these programs, I think the most important argument is usually moral hazard. Uh, you know, there's an argument that because you're giving people money on a universal basis, it uh, basically kills incentives to work or to earn an income. So that's, I think, one uh, argument against. The other argument against is actually efficiency-based. The argument is often that uh, this is actually very inefficient because it gives money to people, including uh, to everybody, including people who don't need it. And 
what's interesting to me at least is that some of these pros and cons are actually in the same general principle. For example, efficiency, right? Is it actually more efficient because it uh, reduces administrative overhead or is it actually less efficient because you give it to everybody? Uh, so I think sometimes it's down to an empirical question and you can't decide it based on just the principle alone. You have to see what actually happens in practice. And I guess related to that would be, I mean, the obvious question and contextualizing it to Singapore would be the recent proposal that you put in Parliament, which is the Majula UBI instead. And so, you know, the both of you proposed, I guess, how similar or different is it from a typical UBI, the way we conceptualize it? Um, oh, okay. So, so I think, uh, how, okay, how similar or different it is to a typical UBI? Okay, so I think the, the major difference between what we're proposing and how many people think of a UBI is that uh, we actually design ours as a time-limited uh, universal payout. So I think the time-limiting is quite an important difference. Uh, that's because it addresses many concerns people may have about moral hazard. And you know, the whole reason why we were thinking about it as a time-limited uh, policy at the moment um, is that right now, everybody's uh, facing a lot of economic stress due to COVID-19 in Singapore. And because the economic stress caused by COVID-19 really has got nothing to do with your own choices. I mean, you know, if you're working in a sector of the economy which is hit very hard by COVID-19, it would be very hard for anybody to believe that you deliberately chose that sector six months ago because you wanted to get uh, a payout, you know, today. I mean, that, that's, I think, uh, that notion is ridiculous in the surface of it. So I think uh, everybody can see today that the stress people are facing economically due to COVID-19 has got nothing to do with the choices they made three, four, six months ago, a year ago. Uh, so that moral hazard element, I think, is not really there anymore when you think about universal basic income to deal with the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, we can talk more later about the value of universal basic income in the longer run. But I think at least right now, as a time-limited policy to deal with the worst of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, that's one area where it differs from UBI in other countries, where in general, UBI is often aimed in those countries at replacing or consolidating existing aid schemes. Okay, whereas um, what we're proposing in Singapore, Majula Universal Basic Income Scheme, isn't really meant right now at replacing and consolidating those kinds of schemes. Um, um, I think, can, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, can I yeah. jump in to say something about moral hazard? So, um, okay, so about moral hazard, right, it is, it is not just about choosing industries which will be hit by COVID-19, okay? So it will be things like um, when people are retrenched, whether they can find a job. And in the current situation, uh, it, it is very difficult to find a job. You see, because companies are not sure what the risk, um, you know, like how their businesses will un unfold in the next few months. When are they uh, able to go back into operations? What is the demand going to be like? Is there a new pattern of consumption? Um, so with all these uncertainties, we foresee that uh, getting employment is difficult. More people will be retrenched for no reasons of their own. So it's not contributed because they're lazy, but it's more like... Um, you know, just because of this, this big shock that everybody is experiencing right now. Yeah, and because of this, it makes moral hazard very unlikely um, to be the main driver of unemployment. 
and hence um, UBI in such a context is very um, is very suitable because the, the 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 cons of UBI is completely has mostly disappeared in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess yeah. the key features, correct me if I'm wrong, would be time limited, which um, Walter mentioned was 12 weeks, right? That was how it's conceptualized and it's $110 per week in that sense. So is that all that someone needs to know? Or are there other key features that someone should be cognizant of with um, the Majula UBI? Well, you know, uh, normally UBI programs are actually just another way of um, redistributing income or organizing income transfers. And I think our program has that aspect as well, but it's got another aspect uh, which is there because it's time limited. And that is it has a feature of bringing income from the future uh, to the present. And the reason why that, that exists is uh, the way we've designed it is we've proposed that it should be financed with a temporary increase in personal income taxes. But the way our tax system in Singapore works is if I increase the tax rate on accessible income uh, this year, you actually only pay that next year. Okay, Because you know your taxes are only assessed after your entire income for the year is, has been kept computed. What After you know your entire income for the year. So that feature means that for, let's say, somebody in the, you know, kind of middle income tax group, uh, even though the way the system, the way MUBI is designed is that you might not benefit on net, you still, however, benefit from bringing your income forward. So suppose you go through a pretty rough patch in the middle of this year, but by the end of the year, you recover, you get a bonus, everything like that. Well, what our program would end up doing is moving the money from next year when you're paying the higher taxes to right now when you might need it because you're going through a pretty bad patch. So I think that's another feature which is a bit different, but that only happens because uh, it's a time-limited program, right? Yeah, but I think that's an important uh, distinction. Well, that's an important piece because you spent, um, the both of you spent a lot of time in the policy paper on the financial considerations when designing it. And you just mentioned the financing part of it, which is recording the payouts as personal income. I guess the other question would be on the other side was, how did you decide the $110 and um, over 12 weeks? And how do we decide that 110 would be the right amount for every week for each Singaporean? Yeah, so we looked at uh, household expenditure survey data. And what we looked at is uh, per person expenditures in households in four areas, uh, groceries, hawker food, utilities, and uh, phone and internet. And it turns out $110 per person covers about 60% plus or so of households. So what it covers is uh, larger households, but it turns out that very small households have uh, more expenses in these areas than 110. But anyway, the point is it covers the majority of households for these uh, four expenditure categories. So why these expenditure categories? Well, uh, we think that these are the areas which um, satisfy what most Singaporeans would think of as basic cash um, expenses or cash daily necessities. We deliberately don't cover uh, housing and that's because um, Singaporeans tend to either own their houses or they have their, their housing payments already supported through you know, other schemes like public rental and so on. So we really wanted to focus it on you know, cash expenses that people need, um, especially Right now, when we're going through, for example, circuit breaker measures where you're going to be stuck at home and you actually really need to make sure that your utility payments and phone and internet are paid for because that's actually the lifeline a lot of people have of the world, you know. So that's why we focus in those areas. 
Um, in terms of the, you know, how long the timing, 12 weeks, honestly, 12 weeks is, you know, a bit of a guess because I think none of us really know right now how long it's going to take to actually get through the crisis. Um, but it's modular, right? Meaning that you can always add more weeks in the payment, but of course, then you have to think about how you want to finance it. You might have to um, extend the, you know, the tax increase more if you want to do that. And you mentioned that it was possible to look at the temporary personal income tax increase because it was time limited. So imagine or dare we imagine that this was something that's more permanent or something that is um, beyond 12 weeks. So what would financing mechanism look like if hypothetically this went beyond 12 weeks or, or more kind of like permanent feature in the country? Well, you know, for, for me, I think whether you have um, a time limited measure or whether you have a permanent measure, it's important to think about balancing the budget when you design a program. And, you know, the reason for that is, um, I think, uh, you know, at least as, uh, at least as somebody who thinks about policy, I don't think I have got the information necessary to make a judgment on whether spending from the reserves is uh, a good or bad use of, uh, of, of that money right now in terms of the marginal cost of expenditure. I mean, I know there's a lot of talk out there. Uh, a lot of economists whom I respect have argued, you know, for example, that we should be spending more from the reserves or we should not be accumulating so much. So I think those are fine arguments, but at least from, from my own perspective, I don't think I've got the information necessary to be able to make a judgment about whether this kind of spending is a good or bad use of the money right now. So because I don't have the ability to make that judgment, I felt that it was better for me to design a policy that could be funded uh, internally or rather through, could be, you know, where you could balance your budget through a tax increase rather than just say, look, I'm just going to spend it from the reserves. So at least that, that's, my, that's how I look at it from uh, philosophically. I, um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, so, so one consideration, I guess, is that uh, what are the alternatives do we have? Okay, so for example, when we designed the, the uh, movie, right, it was against this other competing um, possibilities, like, for example, um, just drawing down the reserves and giving people cash payouts. So between the two, um, because the COVID-19 situation is really unprecedented, you know, there are so many areas that needs funding and, and support, government support. So, for example, um, businesses uh, will need the, the government support to, to stay afloat. And, and, and hence, there, there is a lot of use for our reserves, you know. And how long can we continue to draw down the reserves for this, this um, pandemic and how much? Um, of, of course, that's the empirical questions like, like uh, what Walter is saying. But... Suppose that we believe in this uh, a bit of a co-sharing um, of risk kind of approach, then, um, then, then a movie that is um, a universal basic income that is a time-limited li one that is funded by increase in, uh, temporary increase in tax next year um, sounds, sounds correct. But, whether, but that doesn't mean that you know, like, uh, if we have a extended a long-term universal basic income, it should be funded in the same way. Yeah, so it's, um, the, the movie is designed with the current context in mind. Yeah, so the, the way if you want to extend um, a universal basic income in a, on a long-term basis, then you have to recalibrate the, the various tax revenues that we are drawing, um, you know, including GST, including mm -hmm. 
income taxes, business taxes, and so on. So that's a very difficult question. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I guess my, oh, sorry, go ahead, Walter. Yeah. So, so I guess just maybe, um, <clears throat> just, just to add on to that, <clears throat> um, I think, um, you know, if, if you were to make this kind of a permanent scheme and you just do the simple math, then it's quite obvious the personal income tax increase would have to reach a level that I think uh, most Singaporeans would consider probably quite prohibitive, right? If you just take four and a quarter percent and you multiply that about four plus times, I mean, that, that kind of increase, uh, I don't think most, I mean, I think right now most Singaporeans are probably not prepared to pay that, even if it comes with, uh, you know, better social security, at least for now. But I think there are alternatives like uh, wealth taxation, for example, or other types of taxation. And in fact, uh, you know, a number of people have actually uh, come to me and said, uh, you know, as, uh, as a higher income taxpayer, it's not that I mind paying the higher taxes, but why aren't you going after the people who are really well off, which are people who are sitting on a huge pile of wealth, you know, because, uh, you know, in Singapore with our low capital um, taxation uh, policy, people who sit on a lot of money will just generate more and more money from that, right? You know, from the investment. So um, I think the issue, so, so I think that's worth looking at, but there's a much broader set of issues that have to be uh, taught through about how you would design a wealth tax in Singapore and how you would uh, make sure that you don't have too much leakage and things like that. So, so I think that is a more complicated set of issues. Mm -hmm. um, as for whether the scheme can be permanent, I think like, Chien was saying earlier, you really have to look at how it integrates or replaces existing schemes targeted at uh, low-income Singaporeans, which are also quite comprehensive and can be quite uh, also costly. So I think that's something, a discussion we can also have. Yeah, because yeah, I guess it's a nice segue because we talked about the empirical, the financial, the fiscal, the mathematical. One of the things that I picked up from your report was that, and in your words in the report was that the scheme it's a fundamental shift from the standard means-tested welfare system used today in Singapore and many other countries. And at least from where, where I stand and from my own research, and, and a slightly longer preamble here would be that social welfare policies in the country have been characterized by a few principles we're really familiar with, things like self-reliance, social responsibility, many helping hands. And, you know, so a lot of it involved means-testing, eligibility, even this notion of deservedness. So on the other hand, movie is very much a universal scheme, right? So it appears to run up against these principles we've kind of been embedded in. So I guess, how do we then start moving if we are to move towards this more universal approach and what forms of support or more importantly, what forms of resistance do we expect to see when, um, when something like this happens in the longer term? Okay, so... Yeah, so, so if you don't mind uh, me starting. Okay, so again, I want to emphasize that MUBI is not the same as a long-term universal basic income system because a longer term, uh, if it is a longer term solution, then it needs a system approach. Like you need to redesign the entire um, uh, you know, social safety net kind of system to incorporate um, universal basic income as part of the components. And that may mean getting rid of some of the other schemes. You know, otherwise they will not complement each other and they may erode or create more moral hazard than necessary, which really erodes the point of universal basic income. So movie is um, so why is movie more justifiable than if a longer term um, UBI needs more consideration? It's because um, movie really helps anyone who is at risk at, of losing their income 
and that includes a lot of people right now. Whereas a UBI will help the vulner uh, vulnerable population um, you know, to a higher extent than the rest of the population. You see, so okay, so okay. the the coverage of movie is much larger than uh, expanded UBI. Yeah, so I want to point out that distinction first before yeah. we start discussing about um, you know, like what are the other social welfare policies yeah. that we we should have in Singapore as a as a whole. Gotcha. Yeah. So based on that, would you? I mean, in a narrower scope, in that sense, how would you describe the? general response or reactions you've received after proposing movies. So that's the one where we're not talking about a more kind of like broader shit, but just with movie itself, what's been the response like you've received? Walter should, should have heard more responses. <laughs> yeah, I think the... Um, okay, so... So I think first, uh, you know, there are... First, maybe let's put aside responses which haven't read through the entire scheme properly because uh, I get a lot of responses that are very positive about the scheme, obviously because they never read to the point where I propose an increase in taxes. So lots of people, you know, in, in general, people just seem to love the idea of getting money for not paying anything or think that the money is going to come from the reserves or whatever it is. And I think let's, let's just discount those uh, responses, right? Because they haven't thought about the whole thing properly. So among people who have, I think, uh, understood what the scheme tries to do, uh, I'd say that... Uh, Okay, there are a couple of different groups. First, there's a group of Singaporeans who are relatively better off uh, and who actually support the idea of uh, sacrificing or giving up a bit uh, in the name of solidarity to help Singaporeans who are not so well off and who are going through a lot of hardship right now. Those people are supportive, but at the same time, those people have questions about uh, whether, for example, the system is redistributed enough. So uh, earlier I highlighted the case of some people who have high incomes but who say, you know what, although I have a high income, I'm not actually the one who is really the high income one in Singapore. The people who are really high income in Singapore are the people sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars in wealth or things like that. And so what they come to me and say is, instead of taxing me, even though I'm a high income earner, actually in Singapore, I'm, I'm actually one of the poorer ones. You need to go after the guys who, you know, have got a billion dollars or whatever. So, okay. So, so what they're really suggesting is you need to add in wealth taxes in order to make it fairer because in Singapore, even a high income earner isn't actually sitting on the top. Okay, so, so that's one view that I've gotten. Um, I mean, another view from this group, I think, would be about targeting. You know, they say, well, uh, I'm okay to pay more, but then you shouldn't be giving me the money or, you know, it's a waste of money to give it to people like me and so on. Okay, so, so there are people of concerns about uh, targeting as well. Yeah, so, so I think that's uh, one. Yeah, so, so I, I, I guess those are really the main concerns, at least that I've seen. Uh, people feel that there is, in general, a uh, further divide in Singapore between those who merely earn money from day-to-day -day work and those who apparently earn money from just sitting around doing nothing. I mean, I guess that's what people feel. And, you know, they, they feel that the system, the taxation system in Singapore somehow is not weighted properly, uh, you know, to recognize that. Okay, But I think that's a much broader issue. But I think it's interesting because you can see that a proposal like Mobi brings up a lot of, I would say, uh, you know, like um, undercurrents or underlying um, 
it brings up a lot of underlying disquiet people have about the distribution of income and wealth in Singapore. Uh, and I think what's interesting about it is it's forced people to confront some of these uh, realities and to think about whether it's fair and to think about whether it's possible to design a, a better system. Yeah. So, um, so the, the, other, the other reaction that I've heard is this, which is that um, why should we be taxed um, to help the low income I mean, you know, we could just help the low income directly through donations, which is actually what the government prefers uh, and encourage you, you know, like they encourage you to donate your solidarity fund. Um, so, and okay, so what's the difference between the two, two systems, right? Like the movie one and uh, do, private donation. So the private donation indeed generates a lot of warm glow. So when we, uh, for donors who donate, they feel good about themselves. However, the, the truth is that very few of us have um, information, correct information, or, or rich enough information to make good decisions about uh, how to channel our donation money. You know, like which are the social services that we should support more or less. Um, you know, what are the what are the needs of the low income families? Uh, a lot of people. I mean, look looking at the the reactions of um, the public to um, uh, recent news coverage about low-income families, you know, and their situation, right? We, we know that actually most Singaporeans do not know very well what, uh, what is it like to be low-income. Mm -hmm. And hence, how, how would you know how to channel the money? Yeah. You see, so a more direct approach in terms of uh, money rather than in-kind help um, may, be, may, may reduce a lot of this cognitive work and hence um, contribute more to the, the family's overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me, I mean, this is a side, but it reminds me of the recent Channel News Asia piece and Walter was quoted in that about food insecurity, where the focus was a lot about um, how do we coordinate the services. And I think there was a proposal that, and Walter, correct me if I'm wrong, but about how families themselves might be able to want, might be the ones who make the best decisions. And rather than giving them food and rations, but giving them cash directly will allow them perhaps to make the best decision rather than having programs and services channel all these things to them in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's an excellent point because I think um, the, the problem is when it comes to, yeah, charity, like Chien was saying, I mean, quite often charity is driven by the demands of those who have money and want to give it. It's not actually driven, you know, uh, sometimes that much by what are the real needs or demands of those who need the help. I mean, that, that's one of the fundamental problems with the charity, the model. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, to me, it's a bit of a shame because what I can see is everybody in the sector is incredibly well-meaning and they, you know, they have the best interests of the beneficiaries at heart, but a lot of it ends up being driven by the demands of the people who have the money rather than the opposite. And that's part of the issue here. Yeah. And I guess this is where I kind of probably jumped the gun just now, which he and corrected me because I was conflating both the movie and the UBI in general in that sense. And I think we talked a lot about the movie scheme, which is that the few features of it, which is quite clear. It's, it's time limited. It's 12 weeks. It's $110. So I guess my next question will be then maybe this is the right opportunity to think about a broader kind of like UBI scheme in that sense. So I guess to lead off with that, 
what is the state for the average listener listening to this? What's the state of UBI research around the world? And what is then the plausibility of implementing a broader UBI in Singapore um, in the near future? Well, I think, um, you know, if, if you just go and Google the news or you Google the term, you'll see that there are quite a lot of uh, countries or, you know, areas um, have implemented various um, time-limited UBI trials. I mean, one of, the, one of the more famous ones, which will come up if you Google very quickly, is uh, Finland's uh, UBI trial, which took place, uh, you know, I think uh, between 2017 and 2018. Uh, and there the trial, the idea behind the trial, I believe, was to uh, try to replace the unemployment insurance system with a UBI system instead for, you know, for um, an experimental group of uh, citizens uh, to see whether that would be different from having them go through the standard unemployment insurance system in Finland. And I think um, the research on this is still ongoing, but the early conclusion seems to be that the concerns people have about moral hazard. In other words, if you give people money without any strings attached, as opposed to having them go through unemployment insurance, uh, you know, people are usually concerned that this will lead to people not wanting to work at all because usually a key difference is with an unemployment insurance system, there's usually some requirement that you try to find work or things like that, okay? As opposed to UBI where there's no such requirement. So the early indication seems to be that there is no significant moral hazard concern, uh, which is to say that the research either finds no difference in work effort or it may even find, in fact, that the UBI group has a higher propensity to work than the unemployment insurance group. Okay, so at least I think right now we can say moral hazard concerns are probably uh, not present, at least in this group, but you know, that's just one group. Uh, yeah. Um, there's also evidence that uh, the system, the UBI system, appears to have a lot of benefits in subjective well-being, which is to say that people feel less stress, uh, less concerned. They feel that, uh, you know, administratively, it's a lot easier for them to access help compared to the standard unemployment insurance system. Okay, so I think that's the that's some of the early findings from Finland. Um, if you look at other programs in, throughout the world, uh, there are a lot of unconditional cash transfer programs now going on, but those are mostly in the context of development economics research, which is to say that uh, you're talking about giving people in very poor countries um, sums of money without any strings attached. And I think the context there is going to be quite different to a country like Finland or Singapore, where there are already quite a few social safety nets of various types. And so the uh, you know, the context and the aim of UBI in Finland and Singapore is going to be very different. It's going to be more about trying to uh, reduce the administrative overhead and concerns and lack of access rather than uh, creating something which doesn't exist at all, you know. So I think, so I think it may be a bit hard to, yeah, to extrapolate from some of the development economic research to the Singapore context, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, how likely are we to see, you know, a research or experiment on UBI? So not even thinking about a policy, right? But in terms of something that's maybe, maybe on a similar or slightly smaller scale than what was done in Finland on, you know, running an experiment and see if this is actually something that will bring about either unemployment or employment benefits or um, benefits to subjective well-being, as you alluded to. How likely is that to happen? Yeah. Not the scheme, but just a re like a like a research or an experiment. How likely is that to happen? 
I think in Singapore, uh, you know, if, if it's going to happen, it will most likely, I think, have to happen through the decision of a charity or a large private funder who thinks that the idea has some merits, at least to, to try out. And, you know, they want to make a difference by, by, uh, by pushing it or proposing it. I guess, again, this goes back to what I said earlier about how a lot of charitable efforts are really demand-driven. Uh, I, I think there is a sense among uh, some large donors in Singapore that what we're doing in the current charitable sector in Singapore, you know, I wouldn't say that it's, uh, that it's ineffective at all, but I think there might be a sense that there is no game-changer or something that might fundamentally, uh, you know, work to uplift people from, from poverty because uh, we've been doing a lot of social sector work in Singapore for many years. There are a lot of programs going on. There's, there's no end of actually a shortage of programs that, you know, that, that help um, low-income individuals in Singapore. But despite the fact that there's no shortage of programs, I think, uh, you know, sometimes people feel that um, there's you know, there's no big bang or there's no, you know, kind of like fundamentally disruptive policy that, uh, you know, that, that tries to make, um, you know, that, that tries something novel or new, right, to see whether it would work better. So I think it's possible that uh, there might be a large funder who wants to try this out to see whether, you know, this kind of policy might result in a big change in outcomes compared to the existing, uh, you know, the existing uh, modalities. So I think that's the most likely, uh, you know, like way in which it would get implemented. Yeah, I agree that um, it's more likely that the charities would, you know, like if we ever run a UBI trial, it will be funded by charity because like you said, this is not, uh, the, U, the, the UBI builds on a set of principles that is quite different from uh, what we are used to. So the general public may not be ready for it, and hence it's very difficult for the government to have the resolve to push, uh, push for it, you see, without any sort of um, expectations on how good it will work. But having said that, the, 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 um, it, is, it, is a, it is a beautiful scheme in the sense of it believes in the goodness of people, you know, to not try to, to not be lazy, to, try to, to not try to take advantage of other people's hard work. Okay, so it's a beautiful scheme in that sense. It, it, it gives the acknowledgement that everybody is the same and therefore deserves the same kind of support. Um, however, the truth is that um, whether, this, whether the, the, the beauty of this scheme can, be, can, be fully, can fully blossom depends on the context. So for example, if we run the trial in Finland and in Singapore now, we may or may not get the same kind of results. Um, because of the context. So for example, um, in Finland, um, presumably the, the kind of job conditions are much better in Finland for the low-income workers. And because the work environment is much better, hence um, the moral hazard of not wanting to go to work may be much lower. Okay, So moral hazard is not just about laziness, but it is about the, how difficult it is um, to, to, to make your ends meet on a day-to-day day -day basis. So for example, the, I mean, this is, this is very classic, right? For, for, a, for a mother with young children. So what are the options? You know, if you go to work, then you get income uh, or should you be staying home and take care of your children? Okay, so it really depends on the childcare subsidies and whether it makes sense for you, whether the work 
environment gives you the flexibility of taking care of your children. Um, in Finland, presumably again, that they may have more favorable um, family support in, at work. And hence the moral hazard or rather the unemployment uh, is not so substantial and people feel like they can build on the, the basic income, right? And earn more income to supplement their needs. But in Singapore, um, it may or may not work out, you know, depending on how people view um, the, the, the value of their work. So if they are, if they are going to pay more and uh, spend a lot of energy going to work and then using all their, the extra money that they make to finance childcare, they may opt to stay at home. So do, do you count that as a failure or success? Um, I, I, I think at this point in time, when we compare the schemes, it is mostly based on the comparison of employment rates. But um, more recent research right, also looked at subjective well-being, like Walter said. And that's very important because the, the subjective well-being, like uh, mental health and cognitive functioning, really tells you the potential of um, the, the recipients. Uh, in terms of their, their ability to support themselves when the need arises. Yeah, so um, my, my own sense is that we will see more results in those areas than employment or unemployment. And we should definitely move away from employment and unemployment um, only kind of measures of success of program. Yeah. Mm. But I think here I also want to add the point that um, this speaks to an interesting difference between the political outcomes of a program and the social science outcomes. I mean, from a social science research point of view, subjective well-being is very important. Uh, you know, as, as Chien explained, it really tells us something fundamental about not just welfare, but also the capacity of people to, to actually be, you know, productive and happy citizens, right, of, of any country. But from the political point of view, uh, and I say this not just referring to for example, politicians in Singapore, you know, the reality is you can only sell a program like this if you deliver, I think, on the unemployment outcome. And that is because in any country, there are actually not enough taxpayers willing to shell out uh, income taxes to support people if they feel that those people are not willing to support themselves. I mean, that's the political reality. Even in uh, fairly, I think, socialist or liberal countries, uh, you will not get the political support for a program like this unless you can show that it's got no, at least it's got no moral hazard. Uh, and even better, if you can show that it actually improves unemployment income. So while from a social science point of view, we want to include everything in our assessment, I think my assessment is, you know, based on my very limited time in politics, that there are lots of people out there who just hate the idea of paying for other people to do nothing. And you need to actually address that in the policy, because if you don't, uh, then it will not have political support. And therefore, the policy will be abandoned at some point because people will say, you know, I don't want to pay taxes for people to do nothing. And that's something you have to be aware of. That's the problem. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm quickly pulling up the policy paper from the Finland experiment from 2015. And what it did relating to your point about this tension between social science outcomes and political outcomes is when they asked, you know, how supportive are you of basic income? It was 69%. But the big caveat here was that when they were told the tax rates needed to increase or finance basic income, the support went down. So the 69% was consistent across all political parties. But when they were told how much the, the tax, rates, tax rates needed to go up, then the, the, the support went down. And I guess it links up to your point about that cognizance of political outcomes and political realities, I guess. Yeah. 
And I guess and I related to that, the very final yeah. question, and me yeah. being very careful not to um, confuse movie and the UVI itself, I think with the UVI itself, I guess my fascination is that we can look at all these other countries, but there seems to be intermediary steps in between also. So, you know, things I'm thinking about, like an unemployment insurance scheme, um, you know, um, supplements to WIS, the work plan income and supplement scheme, or even things like a silver support scheme. So I guess as a final thought, what are your thoughts about uh, where we are right now and where, we sh- where should we go in terms of the social, I- social science and social policy outcomes in the next few years? Okay, so um, I think first it's, it's important to think about what UBI is and what it isn't, right? So, you know, UBI, I think, is not quite a replacement for unemployment insurance, um, at least as how it's conceived in many countries. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people in Singapore have uh, long, you know, bemoaned the fact that we don't have an unemployment insurance system. Um, but usually unemployment insurance systems are designed to actually replace income and they're not you know so much designed to provide a minimum standard of living so you know your minimum standard of living is really usually taken up by other schemes like in singapore comcare uh, public support things like that so um so so they have quite different uh, design objectives, right, between replacing your income so that you can continue your standard of living for a number of months after you lose your job versus making sure that you and your family uh, don't starve to death or you're not able to just take care of your basic needs. So UBI is much more at stopping people from falling below the minimum standard of basic living. Unemployment insurance is more aimed at ensuring that families and people can continue with their current standard of living, even if it's fairly good for at least some time after they lose a job. So they're quite different uh, objectives. Um, so I think in, Sing- in the Singapore context, you know, I personally suspect there's much more support for a policy that tries to give people a basic standard of living compared to one that uh, that maintains a higher standard of living if you lose your job. And I think that's just, you know, because of the, um, um, I guess the, I guess the uh, feeling people have that, you know, if you happen to have a job disruption or anything like that, part of the response has to be that you tighten your belt a bit. I mean, I think, uh, I think this is a debatable issue because, you know, fluctuations in consumption and so on can be quite harmful to people, uh, you know, even if, um, they're coming from a fairly good level. But, you know, anyway, I get the feeling that in terms of, uh, you know, public support for this notion, you know, people feel that, uh, yeah, that there needs to be some adjustment uh, if, you, if you happen to have an income shock. Um, in terms of overall income support in Singapore, I think there's a broader discussion one should have about whether, um, okay, about whether we should, as a national policy, have some kind of integrated minimum income support scheme. Because right now, there are many different ways you can get to your minimum income, and it really depends on how old you are, what you're doing, and so on, right? Because the ways could range from welfare income supplement top-ups to a silver support if you're past a certain age, to you know various public assistance schemes if you are, for example, permanently permanently disabled. And I guess the issue here is because we've got all these different schemes, they seem to be saying that you're entitled to different amounts of basic income depending on your 
deservedness and deservedness is determined by a whole bunch of factors, right? So I think it's worth thinking about whether there's consistency between the different schemes and whether we can actually harmonize them uh, a bit more. Because I think uh, people often realize that there are either gaps or there's a bit of an inconsistency depending on, on your personal circumstances. And I think that could be an issue. So that's uh, one problem. I think another... Yeah, so yeah sorry, go on. Yeah. Okay, uh, so just to follow up on your point, Walter, which is that like um, fragmented um, help, right? Um, okay, so what's the, the, the issue with fragmented help, meaning multiple policies, um, you know, giving you assistance in, uh, due to, um, for different characteristics um, versus a more, more unified kind of um, um, policy, right? Um, in terms of how much the recipient gets is probably the, about the same. Okay, so that's, that's the argument that uh, actually it's about the same or if not more for the fragmented ones, for certain groups. Um, the, the problem is that even for those who get a little bit more, it's unclear whether the bandwidth tax on them um, will, will be offset by the additional assistance that they get. For example, the bandwidth tax means that uh, you are constantly under some you know, uncertainty about whether you qualify or you do not qualify for a certain scheme. You do not know when you are going to lose certain benefit. Um, and you do not know whether the changes in your current uh, financial situation, like a, a, a small increment or a small bonus, would knock some of these benefits up. So there is a lot of there is a lot of brain work involved, you know, in, in re-optimizing uh, what is the maximum amount of assistance I can get um, yeah, as a low-income person. And I think that is very, very stressful for a person who is struggling with um, not just, you know, like um, uh, financial needs, but also, you know, family needs and so on and so forth. And, and because of that, a fragmented system has a lot of costs, um, mental costs that are not captured by the financial costs. Yeah, and we should definitely take note of that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there are, there are two other broad issues um, that, that I'm also concerned about, lah, you know, in, in, in this context. One is the extent to which um, we think that low-income Singaporeans should be responsible for their own social insurance, for paying for their own social insurance. In other words, uh, is it actually reasonable to expect that a low-income Singaporean should be able to save up enough over their lifetime to pay for their retirement, medical bills, and so on? Um, I think the other issue is um, the other issue is what's the right balance between, um, you know, having state support come in to make sure that low-income Singaporeans have enough to live on versus, uh, you know, versus trying to take care of this through the other end instead, which is to make sure that the jobs actually pay enough so that people can live on them. And that's, I mean, that, that's another, that's a debate with quite a long history and an argument behind it as well. Um, I mean, I, I think on the first issue, uh, should we really have low-income Singaporeans pay for all their own social insurance? I think if we were to do the math, we would realize that this argument is actually just a policy principle that has no empirical basis to it whatsoever. What I mean is that, you know, when you look at over the course of the life cycle, if somebody is stuck in a low-income job over their entire life cycle, there's no way that if you add up all of the money they save from CPF, that is enough to pay for the expected costs of retirement. You are going to have to come in to supplement them anyway. Therefore, I guess the question should be, what's the point of making them feel 
that they need to be responsible for it. You know that you're going to step in to save them anyway. You know that you're going to pay for the medical subsidies anyway. So is it really, um, you know, is it really socially beneficial for them to feel for 30 to 40 years that they need to be saving another dollar every day to pay for their retirement? It actually doesn't make a big difference in the final scheme of things, but you, if there's some kind of national solidarity, you know, uh, bonus that, that, that you get from making people feel that way. So obviously policymakers think that there is, but I think this is an empirical question, really. Um, yeah, yeah, I think on, on the second issue, uh, yeah, this, you know, this is really, it goes back to a debate that I think um, um, many people have talked about. I think the, one of the more vocal proponents of this was Lawrence Lien when, back when he was an NMP. And, uh, you know, uh, the point here basically is that there's a difference in dignity between people being paid uh, a living wage and between you as the government or society making up of that living wage by giving people transfers. Uh, that's, and I think that's an, that's an important difference there. So, you know, but finding the right balance is difficult. Yeah, I, I just have a, I just have a thought, uh, which is, uh, okay, so taxation, right? Okay, so rich people are pay more taxes, poor people pay no taxes, okay, but they pay in terms of bandwidth tax, so mental tax, okay, so, but we, we always focus on the financial taxes, yeah, but we never focus on bandwidth tax, uh, which is the mental, mental cost. So, so, so this is the this is the part I think we need to have strike some sort of balance in terms of taxation. Okay, so I think it's it's fair that um, we think that you know like uh, if a person is not uh, is is not very hardworking, they then they should be made to jump through a few hoops. Okay, let's say that's what a lot of people think. Huh? that uh, if you are not very lazy, uh, if you are not very hardworking, then you should be made to jump through a few hoops before you get some assistance. Uh, almost like it's like training them to be more active, you know, like to 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 do something. Um, uh, okay, so there are there are two problems with this. One is that we are off, we are too preoccupied with this group of people. You know, whenever we talk about any policy, the first group of people that we think of are this group of people, people who are not hardworking enough, uh, and somehow people who wants to take advantage of the system. But we never uh, we we seldom pay attention to the reverse. Who, who are, uh, which is this group of people who are very hardworking all their lives. They try not to tap on assistance because they are afraid that they take away public money for other people in need. And, by, and, and you know, after being hardworking all their lives, they are still unable to finance their own retirement. You see, so we pay too little attention to this group of people. And we, when we think about policy, we need to pay attention to that because that says something about meritocracy, right? Which is that you're hardworking, then you should get something. Okay, so um, not the reverse. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that's, that's very, uh, that, that's the, the, the thing that I, I feel that we should pay more, more attention to. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, I think that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's basically the issue whether people get a living wage, right? It doesn't seem correct that in the system we have, somebody who works hard their entire life, who just happens to, for example, either have uh, not very much formal education or maybe they're just in a job which, uh, you know, for one reason or another doesn't pay well, well, doesn't matter that they work, you know, uh, 60 hours a week for 40 years. At the end of the day, they still will never have enough money to 
buy a flat or finance your own retirement or pay for their medical bills. And so that seems fundamentally problematic because it surely cannot be the case that uh, the solution to this is, oh, don't worry, society will pay for it. But, you know, they, they contributed, right? To the, you know, so they should be able to pay for this of their own accord is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then that brings me to the second point, which is that um, a lot of the behaviors of low-income families, right, is not, is not the, is, is not, is probably not um, their personality trait. It's, po it's probably a response to the, their current conditions. So when current conditions change, their behavior change. And hence, we should not think about, um, you know, low-income families as um, just like one type of behavior throughout their entire lifetime, throughout their entire, uh, even if things change for them, you know. So we know of many families also, or many individuals in our life who was, you know, not so motivated at a certain stage of their life, and then suddenly become the most motivated person after they, you know, change the context, okay, something changed in their, in their life. Um, it could be a life event, it could be that they are in a different job environment or, you know, just, just a completely different environment. So the, the importance of the environment and the signals from the society is very important in shaping how they feel about um, employment and about themselves. Uh, unemployment insurance, un unfortunately, I mean, in terms of signaling, always remind people that they are unemployed. Yeah, and, and that sounds, that, that always has the stigma of, uh, you know, like uh, there's something wrong with you and therefore you're unemployed because if you're really good, you will never be unemployed. But that's not true. Um, so, so, whereas a universal basic income seems to be more supportive of that fact that, you know, you, you are an individual that, um, that is well accepted by the society and we are, we are happy to support you. Okay, so in terms of spirit, that's, that's quite different. And hence, some of the effects may be just that. It may have nothing to do with incentives. It may be just that kind of um, societal expectations. Mm -hmm. And in a way, yeah. you're kind of saying that your self-worth as an individual is not tied to employment and you are not your job in that sense. Would I be right to say that? Yes, yeah. that's right. So I, I, I also feel like uh, there's a lot of like, um, lower-income population who are doing a lot of community uh, work like um, you know just taking care of their, their, their neighbors helping each other out and these are not these are not uh, paid jobs and hence they are not valued but actually they should be valued so how do we measure a person's worth yeah it, it shouldn't just be on employment and that's it for our episode today thank you to Dr. Ong and Professor Walter and thank you the listener for joining us Please also share other initiatives or issues which you think should be highlighted. Email me at sppkjy at nus.edu.sg That's sppkjy at nus.edu.sg You can also subscribe to the newsletter and the podcast at tinyletter.com slash socialservicesg Thank you very much and see you next time.